0: yeah, Duncan Green here. A sunny March morning and I'm here to catch you up with the latest posts on From Poverty to Power. Got quite a few this time because it's a couple of weeks. I started off slow coming back from holiday but now it's picking up speed and suddenly I've got a backlog again which always makes me feel good. Um, so start off with the links I liked and a nice little bit of aid nerd humour sent to me by Ingrid Trinhat in India quotes by famous people if they'd worked in non-profit. And my favourite was probably from Sir Isaac Newton. To every action, there is an equal and opposite reporting requirement. Yeah, uh, that probably rings true for anybody working in the aid sector. Second post was for International Women's Day uh, from Victoria Stetsko, uh, one of our organisers. And it was called Bread and Roses, why Oxfam is shining a light on feminist movements this March. Hearts starve as well as bodies, give us bread, but give us roses, sang striking women workers in the early 20th century United States. That movement's famous demand for bread and roses, expressing a desire not just for higher wages, but for dignity, rights, respect, and equality, is still a huge inspiration to those of us campaigning over a century later. This year, for International Women's Day, Oxfam will be asking people and organisations across the globe to support, celebrate and fund the modern successes to those bread and roses campaigners. Our 2023 campaign under the banner of feminist power will be spotlighting organisations from Kenya to Colombia and speaking about feminist solutions that challenge the status quo. Backing our campaign could mean anything from simply following and amplifying feminist organisations in your country to donating and volunteering for them to asking your government to include them in decision-making processes and fund them. Doing any of this, we we will say, means being on the right side of history. That means celebrating organizations such as FemNet, a Pan-African feminist network that has connected organizations and women to become a powerful outlet today for the voices of women across the continent. FemNet's work on everything from climate justice to women's leadership to sexual and reproductive rights is shifting power in Africa and beyond, mobilizing women, women to campaign for their rights and pushing governments to implement their commitments to, to gender equality. We'll also be highlighting movements that are pushing feminist alternatives to the austerity that is blighting so many women's lives across the world. Movements led by organizations such as Mesa de Economía Feminista, the Colum- a Colombian organization that highlights intersectional inequalities and is building a new framework of feminist economics and a new development model focused on sustainability. The energy and radicalism of such movements are needed more than ever as we seem to be at a crossroads when it comes to gender equality and rights. In recent years, progress has been slowing down and the anti-gender and anti-rights pushback has grown bigger. The fruits of anti-gender mobilisation are taking threatening forms in different parts of the world. Hard-won rights and freedoms for women, girls and queer people are being threatened and in extreme cases revoked. We're witnessing ultra-conservative leaders and influencers come to prominence. Anti-rights actors such as Citizen Go, growing their financial, sorry, uh, I've lost it, and political power, including in international human rights spaces. Meanwhile, so-called gender ideology and other anti-rights discourses are pushing out feminist calls for inclusion and intersectionality. The next post was by uh, authors Th- Temris Khan, Kanakulia Dixon and Micah Sondaji, who've got a new book out called White Saviorism in International Development, which is something that we're hearing a lot about at the moment. Um, it's, it's part of a sort of bigger critique of the nature of development. Since the racial uprising following the murder of George Floyd in 2020, the world has been faced with the reality of racism in most of what is known as the progressive Western world. Movements like Black Lives Matter and Roads Must Fall have brought to the forefront the ingrained legacy of colonialism and racism between those who colonized and those who were colonized. The past has come back to haunt the former, while for many in the latter, the past is still very much the present. The global aid and development sector has not been able to avoid this reality either, primarily because the sector itself was the creation of the end of formal colonization in many countries of the Global South following World War II. And because the sector itself often mimics colonialism via rich Western countries holding political and financial power over lesser privileged nations, who through aid programming are still subservient to their former colonizers. Colonizers. Via this reckoning, hollering cries to decolonize aid are rampant. When used in the West, this concept often becomes arbitrary and historically disconnected calls to decolonise aid, do not actually address the actual elephant in the room. The age-old concept of white saviourism, i.e. the white man, quite literally, coming to save and tame the savages. As inappropriate as this sounds today, it still lingers within current development practices. White saviourism is ingrained in the systems, modalities, practices and attitudes of the global North development sector towards those it claims to work with. And it has led to devastating consequences for the sector and those who claim to work for. This is what our new book, White Saviorism in International Development, Theories, Practices and Lived Experiences, attempts to capture. We define White saviorism as both a state of mind and a tangible power structure, founded on the benevolence of whiteness, which elevates people of white European descent as more capable, more intelligent, thus more developed, which directs their actions in communities of the global South. Over 18 chapters, a range of academics, development practitioners and activists from across the global south voice exactly how this white benevolence has affected their national and personal hist- histories, cultures and economies. They all invoke colonialism and racism as the catalyst for the ineffectiveness and Eurocentric approach international development aid has taken over the decades in countries of Africa, Asia and Latin America. This stretches as far back as Christopher Columbus's discovery in inverted commas, of the Americas And the subsequent annihilation of native indigenous people of the continent to white women saviors as ignorant and arrogant as their white male counterparts to how the concept of saviorism has bled into brown and black peoples as a way to exert power over their own peoples the book relies heavily on african-american writer teju cole's detailing of white saviorism based on his well-known article in the atlantic in which he coined the term white savior industrial complex to point at a larger web of intricate north-south relations rather than a few bad apples in the development ecosystem. The development aid industry has its foundations in the need to help the poor of the developing world concepts the book challenges and it is only the great white saviours of the north who can do so. However in the process these white saviours have set off a chain of events that have led to undermining and devaluing and disrespecting the c- citizens of independent nations around the world. From the proliferation of American aid to Afghanistan to save brown women from brown men, to how Haiti's colonial history has influenced its aid providers, to how voices of non-white nationals are silenced in the industry by white or brown managers, our contributors speak from personal experience as black and brown academics, aid practitioners and activists. They speak of how the white saviors in the guise of aid donors, international NGO workers, consultants and charity workers, have consistently put their own views and perceptions of development over that of their beneficiaries, a heavily contested and misaligned term in itself. Absolutely, a one I never use. Um, back to a bit of humour. I'm increasingly thinking that we all need humour because these are dark times. In amongst the hundred thousand WhatsApp messages leaked from the uh, by the UK um, former UK Health Secretary Matt Hancock. Uh, he, He crazily gave them to a journalist famed for breaking confidentiality agreements to help her write his biography and was amazed when she just gave them to the press. But anyway, in amongst that, there's a little WhatsApp exchange between him and Michael Gove, two UK ministers, in the middle of a meeting. Matt Hancock, what are we trying to achieve in this meeting? Michael Gove, we're letting people express concerns in a therapeutic environment before you and I decide the policy. Do you recognise that? I certainly do. This is the nature of consultation when it doesn't really mean anything. Anyway, I just thought it was quite funny to to actually see that this is what ministers are saying to each other in the middle of meetings. And this was about COVID. Anyway, next post was by me, and it was an interesting chat, Chatham House Rules, so no names, that I'd had recently with some people wondering what a philanthropic funder with a bit of money and little or no bureaucratic constraints could do to encourage the uptake of evidence in policy making. After swiftly batting away any suggestion of a new database, there's a lot of those, and that no one goes there, we got onto some practical steps. So first understanding the system. By all means start with academics and practitioners, but don't stop there. Each is a complex system with very different relationships both to the topic and to the other players. In academia, some are super keen to change the world and see their research as a means to achieve that while others are more concerned with academic advancement and fear this could be hindered by coming to be seen as a mere policy wonk whose research is contaminated by having a pre-existing cause or conclusion to promote. As ever, funders need to dig into the POVO, the point of view of the other, to understand their disincentives or incentives before injecting any money into the system. That should include an institutional analysis. Some academics work for institutions like think tanks that are under huge pressure to generate hundreds of days per year for each employee of highly paid consultancies. Others often in universities may be under less financial pressure, but may be less aligned with the values of practitioners. Tricky. Identifying allies within the system. One place to start is the linkers. Academics with one time practice and vice versa. Putting a bit of cash into facilitating conversations and funding joint activities with those groups will close the gap between the two blobs of academics and practitioners, and could lead to unforeseeable but interesting future collaborations. I suspect that in many cases, despite all those databases and wikis, people still turn to colleagues for advice on who to talk to and what to read. What about taking that seriously, thinking it's a feature, not a bug, and rather than just wishing it could be replaced by a tech solution? Could funders find ways to support or improve that oral network? E.g., by helping it avoid traps such as always recommending that people pick the brains of old white men like me. Yes, please. Decolonising the research system. If research is carried out and credit duly given to local and national researchers, it is more likely to have impact at a national level than the more familiar fly in and fly out system of extractive northern led research. A funder, a funder could help replicate great initiatives like those that led to the Bukavu series of blogs in the, uh, in the Congo on the role of national researchers in global knowledge supply chains. If you're interested in this, search Bukavu series on my blog. I put up a whole bunch of them. They're amazing. Local researchers writing about what it's like to be a local researcher in these northern-led research exercises. Next, set the knowledge free. Philanthropists can help pushing research funders to support open access publication as a default requirement in their research funding next training how to design research for impact is probably the the lecture I am most often asked to give based on some great work by my Oxfam colleagues on its approach to extracting maximum impact from a tiny by academic standards research budget why not fund this in a more systematic way and just an update it looks like the funder may take a look at that idea of a challenge fund for bringing together academics and practitioners on problems. Can you point me to some good precedents, please? There were some really good ones in the comments on the blog. If you know of any and you're listening to this, please go on the blog and uh, leave me a link. Thanks. Next post Does digitalized social protection worsen exclusion for women? So, this was a series of rather excellent blogs actually for International Women's Day by our LSE students published on the LSE International Development blog. Um, and my favorite not least because it was just written so well. It was just a great blogging style. I should definitely hold it up to my students when I get, when I do blogging workshops. Written by Divija Samria. Here's the deal. Digitization of delivery mechanisms in public programmes is increasingly being used to improve targeted approaches, reduce out-of-system leakages and develop response channels in case of a crisis. And the best part? The simultaneous rise of cash transfers has provided ground for a unique opportunity to evaluate women's empowerment beyond traditional means by amplifying their voices within the household through financial independence. Sounds good, right? Digital access in the form of female ownership of mobile phones is only a precondition or maybe pre-precondition to digital use. It extends to other dimensions, such as ownership of basic versus smartphone mobiles, adopting internet usage, and specific uses for which these devices are employed. The OECD reports that the gender gap in mobile ownership dramatically increases for smartphones in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Combined with the fact that male users are more likely to browse the internet, download and use apps, this implies that delivery channels with such needs are likely to reproduce hurdles for women. Now, you're probably wondering, well, if not through phones or the internet, delivering transfer payments directly into women's bank accounts could be an alternative and rightly so. It indirectly addresses the above problems and simultaneously is a step in achieving financial inclusion for women. But the lag in digital literacy points to yet another flaw. Female beneficiaries may still be dependent for spending decisions. Let's look at the type of benefits transferred. There has been recent emphasis on cash transfer programs with the aim of increasing women's bargaining power at home. This could be either through payments that are unconditional or conditional on say, improving school attendance rates or nutritional intake of children. Two concerns emerge when cash transfers are digitally delivered, determining eligibility and undermining the role of mediated public service delivery. This way of public delivery, particularly to upscale benefits, often relies on digital identity cards or automated screening to determine eligibility. But a recent report by the World Bank highlights a big gender gap in obtaining legally recognized digital identification. One of the report's case studies quotes, I get pretty good grades, said Pachari, 15, a stateless hill tribe girl in Thailand. Maybe I'm even at the top of the class, but every time there is a scholarship, it is given to someone who has a national ID card. Truth is, the old system of having frontline workers hand over these transfers directly have a participatory element. It allows space for workers to operate with nuance and discretion, develop relationships, with beneficiaries and for caseworkers to provide interactive support. The need for networks and female kinships has been undermined in the process of ensuring fast-track online delivery. Professor Naila Kabir's view on intersecting inequalities sums it up for us. Digital exclusion is caused by other gender gaps and exacerbates it too. Digitalizing channels through which welfare schemes are delivered must be done after re-evaluating the strengths of traditional delivery models. Integrating the best of both worlds, as utopian as this may sound, offers the best hope. That is a model piece of blog writing about quite a difficult technical issue. So hats off there. But there's also a really nice piece on um, the digital route to navigating abortion bans in Latin America by Freya Thompson. And the role of ICTs in perpetrating and addressing gender-based violence in Africa by Kolata Asras Iab and Kechi Deborah Adeboye. So some really nice stuff there on the on the International Development Department blog. Final piece to talk you through is a sad one. So when I joined Oxfam, there was this guy called Robin Palmer who was obsessed with land rights and he would just you know resist any attempts to, to make him work on anything else. He just was a deep believer that land rights, especially for women, was a crucial issue uh, in Africa and beyond. And he died last month. So somebody called Craig Castro, who worked with him over many years, got in touch with me and asked to write a tribute. And I said, of course. So here it is. Robin Palmer, Oxfam GB's former global advisor, passed away on Sunday, 19th of February. He was a wonderful friend and colleague from whom I personally learned so much about land and property rights in Africa. As a regional advisor for Oxfam GB, OGB, in Southern Africa, I worked closely with Robin in organizing a landmark conference on women's land and property rights in the region in collaboration with the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. Most importantly, perhaps the conference provided a space to share practice uh, and research and build networks between and among organizations, researchers and activists, all committed to improving the lives of people living in poverty. Included in the conference were women affected by land grabbing and property stripping, which gave voice to their issues and grievances. Robin, along with Kari Isumi of the FAO, provided the intellectual leadership. One of the most important things I learned from Robin was the importance of practical action to support implementation of progressive laws, legislation on land and property rights. Following the workshop, I worked with Robin to develop a small program to support the demarcation of land in northern Mozambique, which was critical to secure communal land rights for smallholder farmers. Over the years, we reflected together on how important actual implementation legislation is to fundamentally changing the lives and livelihoods of marginalised women and men living in poverty in Africa. So often legislation exists but is not put into practice and these gaps between theory and practice and the gaps between rights on paper and the enjoyments of rights in people's lives are exploited by elites. We discussed also how the work of civil society and activists in Africa was done with such commitment under such difficult circumstances and represented hope for the future in many countries. Robin set up and managed the women and land rights website for OGB and the related email listserv which provided a platform to share experiences and thinking across the region and beyond. Through the extensive network Robin developed he was able to bring in experiences from Asia and other parts of the globe. When Robin moved from Oxfam to Makoro he continued managing the website. Makoro is an international development consultancy group established in 1982 um, and Robin's passion for the land and property rights of poor and vulnerable people fitted its its, its, its um, uh, core business perfectly. Following his death, an article from Macquarie by Martin Adams and the ensuing comments from around the globe shared on a number of platforms showed just how much Robin influenced others, including the many young students that he supported while working in universities in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia at the time Robin taught there, Malawi and Zambia. Robin had the rare quality and skill to provoke people to think about their circumstances, projects, alliance building initiatives, policy, development research, etc., and apply new information. He was not one to immediately answer a question, but sought rather to formulate questions such that new information was applied by the person posing the question. We invite anyone to write in with your comments on the legacy left by Robin. In this way, we can celebrate his life's work and show how his intellectual and practical leadership influenced others around the globe. And for those of you in Oxford, a funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. on 22nd of March at South Oxfordshire Crematorium Garford. Following the service, friends and family are invited to remember Robin at the Whitem Village Hall and Cricket Club Halls Close, Whiteham. Uh, further details on the blog. And that, on that rather sad note, RIP uh, Robin Palmer, you were a fantastic activist and friend of you know lands right campaigners around the world have a great weekend talk soon bye